Uh, I have to confess, I'm here under false pretenses. Uh, I thought this was a party to welcome Michael and Catherine back from a <laughs> semester away, uh, and that they would be re-ensconced. Catherine would rethink the unfortunate decision she made uh, this time uh, a year ago. Uh, but I discover that the uh, proceedings are uh, far more ominous. Uh, so I just wanted to stipulate that we're not going to let you go. <laughs> the title of this afternoon's panel is uh, Leo Strauss, The Study of Political Philosophy and the Preservation of Liberal Constitutionalism. And Catherine uh, said in a back and forth that we had among the panelists that we needed an organizing framework. I guess she thought this title was uh, a little bit capacious. Uh, uh, so I thought that a uh, good sort of framing question would be uh, to ask each of the panelists and the man himself, uh, what sort of a Straussian is Michael Zucker anyhow? <laughs> Now, I was going to try to answer my own question, so uh, I sat in on his uh, graduate seminar, or at least a few sessions of his graduate seminar uh, on Leo Strauss a couple of years ago, so I thought I had the uh, hermeneutic one. So I went into uh, this uh, text available for sale uh, outside the door um, to the exact middle. Uh, <laughs> I had to say I couldn't find anything, but what I realized <laughs> is I may not have been at the right middle because I think I missed the uh, guidance about whether the middle is the, uh, the numbered pages or the front matters with Nathan. It's, it's by paragraph. Oh, by paragraph. <laughs> uh, in any case, um, we're going to go uh, in alphabetical order, and uh, our first speaker will be James Caesar of the University of Virginia. Uh, Jim is the Harry F. Byrd Professor of Politics at UVA and the Director of the Program for Constitutionalism um, and Democracy. He's the author of a number of books on American politics um, and American political thought, including Nature and History and American Political Development. Harvard University Press. You couldn't place it on a better press than that? <laughs> uh, Cambridge. <laughs> uh, our second speaker is uh, Suzanne Schell, who is the chair of the Department of Political Science at Boston College. Susan, my condolences. Uh, I'm sure coming away uh, here and getting out of the chair's office. No, actually, I love being chair. <laughs> you love being this chair. is a very bad sign, I know, for my character. <laughs> I've only got four more weeks, so. Uh, well, I'm sure they'd be happy to, uh, to re-up you, that's uh, no. what you want to do. Uh, Susan is, uh, uh, writes on the Enlightenment, German idealism, American liberalism, and selected areas uh, of public policy. Uh, third, uh, Nathan Tarkov of the University of Chicago. Nathan is the Carl J. Weintraub Professor of uh, Social Thought and Political Science at the University of Chicago. His scholarly interests include history of political theory, education and the family in political theory, and what I know him best for is principles uh, in American foreign policy. Of course, I wish we had fewer principles, but that's a <laughs> discussion that we've had. Um, and then finally, uh, 
on the panel is uh, a woman who needs no introduction, uh, but I'm going to give it to her anyhow. Uh, Kathleen Zuckert is the Nancy Reeves Group Professor of Political Science Emeritus. Uh, she was editor-in-chief of the Review of Politics from 2004 to 2018. That's almost uh, uh, like being uh, chair for, uh, you know, for a long period of time. Um, she's the author of uh, many books uh, and articles including Machiavelli's Politics uh, and Leo Strauss on Political Philosophy. Now, I see at the end of the table, uh, the man of the hour has uh, insinuated uh, up here. Uh, I mean, I'm a big believer in the last cigarette and the last statement. Uh, but I'm not going to be able to sit at the table because he's here. But uh, we will uh, invite you to uh, deliver uh, you know, a few rebuttals or uh, Corrections or whatever you feel uh, inclined to do. So, Jim, why don't you kick Well, you can't always tell a book by looking at its cover. The jacket of the early editions of Leo Strauss's classic work, Natural Rights and History, consisted of portions of the text of the Declaration of Independence printed on a white background. Current editions also feature the Declaration, with its title set out, Woke Like on a cool, stark black format. These images lead the innocent consumer astray and make him think that this book must be focused on America. Admittedly, natural right in history does open with a brief commentary on the status of the Declaration. In what amounts to a lament, Strauss tells us that Americans of his day, that would be the early 1950s, no longer accept the claim to truth of the Declaration based on a standard of nature. Americans, he tell us, tells us, did have such faith or knowledge in earlier generations, but they do so no longer. And Strauss also acknowledges that American thinkers of his day did largely express their backing for the principles of the Declaration. But, and here's the important point, they did so as a mere preference or partiality, as a belief in some kind of ideal or beneficent myth. Their support did not rest on an idea of nature as a standard. The deeper truth then is this, natural rights in history was written at a time where American thinkers were in thrall of a philosophy of relativism or nihilism, one that denied altogether the standard of nature. Ironically, this philosophy grew up in the homeland of our recent foe, Germany. It was an import without a tariff. <laughs> it, it would not be the first time, Strauss commented, that a nation defeated on the battlefield has deprived its conquerors, that's us, of the most sublime fruit of victory by imposing on them the yoke of its own thought. The logic of Strauss's commentary points in an inevitable direction. So long as Americans remain under the sway of this German philosophy, their superficial preference for the Declaration, which was a product only of luck, will eventually begin to fade away. Americans for a time might follow a Ronald Reagan, a Mitt Romney, or a diminutive Marco Rubio, inhaling their devotion to the founders and to American exceptionalism. But this belief and this ideal will eventually fade as readily as night follows day. 
And so it seems today, elite college students, followed by their sycophantic administrators, ignore or flout the Declaration as they declaim against free speech and celebrate what they call socialism. Meanwhile, others give adherence to the call to make American great again, a slogan that recognizes the legitimacy of every other nation also to try to make its country great again. After making these observations about the Declaration, which takes up no more than seven pages, Leo Strauss turns his attention elsewhere. In the next 318 pages, there are no more direct references to the United States or to its political thought. Natural right and history turns instead to an exploration of historicism, to Max Weber, to the classical thinkers of natural right, the modern thinkers of natural right, and so on, but not a word in the text about the United States. So the impression that the cover to this book creates, that it is about America, is false. The University of Chicago Press, in its lowly desire to move merchandise, <laughs> could not resist fake advertising. I, I have to demur. Joe Popsky told me the story about how Leo Strauss chose that cover. Uh -huh. <laughs> he chose it, and when we changed it, Joe came back to me and said, why did you change it? This was the cover that Leo Strauss wanted. I have to amend this. <laughs> the original cover designed by Leo Strauss shows a scale slightly tipped to the left. That's right, that's right. That's, the that, that's one. That, that's right. That's one that he did. The declaration was not part of Strauss's intent at all. Actually, you're right. I bet. I bet. I bet. I was remembering the original cover, but there's. I think it's been three made. So I forgot about the the, the scale. So you can touch the book. Our debate goal is trying to get more money. I'm not quite sure. Why we did that? <laughs> I don't know. Well, I don't know about it. It's the scales one way or another, so. We'll... Um, good. Uh, I suppose, um, however, that the uh, disappointed reader of this book would be tempted to indulge in an initial inference about America from it. Strauss must be saying, how could he leave us anywhere else? that if only Americans could find their way back to the Declaration, if only Americans could somehow again believe with Lincoln in the sanctity of natural right, we could save ourselves and be restored. But not so fast. A reading of this difficult book will not even allow Americans this measure of solace. Strauss laments uh, the turn and, and turns his uh, uh, book from a... Um, <coughs> excuse me, turns his book into a Jeremiah. For what this book teaches us is that there is not one common view of nature, but in the course of history, three or four different understandings of nature, the Platonic, the Aristotelian, the Thomistic, and the modern. The doctrine of natural rights, the latest, is thus but one of a few views of nature. If America was Lockean, as many suppose, then the recovery of nature here would come about through a reattachment to the doctrine of natural rights. This is the best we could hope for. 
But the Lockean view of nature brings us not development or excellence, but the lowly result of a joyless quest for joy. The restoration of this standard will bring humankind to a lower level. Our success, as your colleague here, Patrick Deneen, says, will be mankind's failure. Let us put this conclusion in the simplest possible terms. Insofar as a return to a standard of nature is a rejection of nihilism, the recovery of natural rights offers us something positive. But insofar as the standard of natural rights is so fatally flawed and degraded, it leaves us in a deep and dismal situation. It's a question of picking your poison. This is the starting point of a remarkable book by the Zuckerts. Forget this time about the cover and give your attention to the title, The Truth About Leo Strauss, Political Philosophy and American Democracy. And this book is, to a large extent, about American democracy. The Zuckerts have their own way of expressing the difficulty Strauss sets up, which comes in the form of a perfect three-part non-syllogism. Strauss's thesis, they tell us, can be subsumed in the following three propositions. First, America is modern. Second, modernity is bad. And third, well, it should be America is bad. But we are shocked and surprised that instead, it is an utter non sequitur, America is good. Each of these three propositions on its own makes some sense. America is modern. Well, you know, novos ordem secularum, we're bringing everything new to the world, including natural rights. Modernity is bad. Well, modernity is this false and dangerous understanding of nature that lowers and demeans human beings, discouraging excellence. America is good. Well, in context, I think this is partly true. For in context, as Strauss shows, America is surely far preferable to any known alternatives in the modern world in which we live. Compared to communism or fascism, there's no question. So comparatively speaking, America is good, or at least good enough. The Zuckerts, incidentally, seem to be fascinated with putting things in threes. <laughs> There is the three-part proposition I just mentioned. The proposition creates difficulties and confusions, which they say in turn leads to three different schools of Straussianism that begin from these three premises. We have the West Coast Straussian school, the East Coast Straussian school, and newly invented for this book, the Midwestern Straussian <laughs> school, which seems to be centered on or near the coasts of Lake Michigan. Each school has a dominant thinker, which leads to three leaders, Jaffa, Bloom, and Diamond, respectively. And all of this is discussed in three chapters of their book. <laughs> the partiality for three, some have suggested, must have come in their move to Notre Dame with its <laughs> attachment to the Nicene Creed. Others, more plausibly, connected to uh, Pythagorean origins. <laughs> the first city planner, discussed in book one of Aristotle's politics, is a Pythagorean named Hippodamus, who saw everything worthwhile as coming in threes. He reminds one perhaps of Michael, but, but for the facts that he had long flowing hair <laughs> and that he dressed a bit like a hippie. <laughs> 
The great wonder, it seems to me, in all of this is how all such strife and turmoil among different schools comes from relatively minor different interpretations of John Locke. People evidently cannot abide living in a less than perfect world. If there are no better alternatives to America in the modern world in which we live, Strauss's three premise might make us uncomfortable and lead to continual complaints. Nevertheless, it seems possible to believe that we do live under the best circumstances that we can, questing, perhaps without universal joy. Uh, this is the world, I think, in which I'm happy to live. Well, thank you. Um, well, it's really an honor and a privilege to be in this company and at this on this occasion. I did not have the great good fortune to be um, Michael's or Catherine's student uh, or their colleague or even a fellow scholar of Locke and the American uh, founding. But I come here as a friend and an ardent admirer and perhaps also as an East Coast Straussian with my heart in the Midwest, if I can put it that way. <laughs> um, so we have been asked by our esteemed uh, moderator to address the question, what sort of Straussian was Michael anyway? I'm not sure what the anyway. He, he is Michael. Yes, yeah. What, what sort of, oh, what kind of, yeah, was, what, what, I'm not sure what the anyway, any, anyway, uh, yeah. Um, so let me answer by way of the specific topic of this panel, Michael's critical appreciation for the work of Leo Strauss, the study of political philosophy, as they bear on the preservation of modern constitutionalism. Um, in both The Truth About Leo Strauss and more recently, Leo Strauss and the Problem of Political Philosophy, Michael and Catherine have made the clearest and most forceful case I know for Strauss's profound friendship for what Michael calls liberal constitutionalism. If not quite a modern liberal, Strauss showed on their reading the profound affinities between the modern constitutional order and Aristotle's best practical regime or polity, supplementing whatever theoretical lapses from which the former might suffer with the practical wisdom to adapt ancient insights to new conditions. Now, the, at the heart of Michael, Michael's enterprise, as we've heard um, this morning, and I'm sure much, much more could be said and far more than I can, I can say, lies an original and far-reaching reading of Locke, as neither the Christian Aristotelian nor the secret Hobbesian that he has sometimes been taken for, but rather as the thinker who more than anyone launched liberalism as we now know it. The core of Locke's innovation, as Michael lays out with his signature clarity, is a new account of personal identity and self-ownership, replacing soul in its traditional meaning, and making sense for the first time of a self whose endeavor to preserve itself and accompanying claim on others is to be understood not only as a liberty, as with Hobbes, but as a right implying reciprocal obligations. Now, if this lock has a passing resemblance to Kant, so be it. <laughs> but it has the advantage of avoiding both Kant's arcane theoretical baggage and a moral purism seemingly at odds with the requirements of ordinary decent politics. The liberal constitutionalism launched by Locke and others is, one might say, 
the effectual truth of Aristotle's political science once the latter's natural science has lost all authority. Michael's Locke is a more attractive figure, both philosophically and politically, than Strauss's arguable caricature in natural right and history, and more complicated presentation in what is political philosophy. And Michael's demolishment of conventional readings of Locke by a variety of interpretive schools is the most vigorous and penetrating that I know. One illustration. In a recent essay on the separation of powers, liberal and progressive constitutionalism, Michael takes on the vexed question of progressivism, both in its current and earlier manifestations. Unlike many conservatives who view Wilsonianism and the New Deal that follows as a radical repudiation of the principles of the founders, and, like the, and unlike those on the left who have adopted its name, Michael presents a compelling case for regarding 20th century progressivism, in the case of Wilson at least, as less a repudiation of liberal constitutional principles than a deformation partly born of the contrary Lochner-era understanding that preceded it. According to that earlier one-sided understanding, the separation of powers that is enshrined in our Constitution has the primary purpose of limiting the power of government to encroach on private property rights. Wilson, who rightly grasped that securing rights in the modern economic age requires a more active government than Lochner-era jurisprudence would allow, wrongly concludes that the separation of powers in the traditional sense is now an impediment to effective government. But as Michael shows, this is neither true on its face nor on the basis of the Lockean insights on which the framers ultimately draw. The genuine defect of Wilsonianism lies not in its abandonment of a liberal concern with individual rights, but it's in its de facto delegation of legislative power to the executive, the better, as Wilson wrongly believed, to secure those rights. But as a deeper understanding of both Locke and by implication the fuller intention of the framers would have taught Wilson, the primary purpose of the separation powers was not to limit governmental encroachment upon individual rights, though that is surely one of its aims, but to secure those rights uh, by assuring that those who make law cannot exempt themselves either from its execution or from per periodic popular scrutiny. Now the result of Michael's um, far-reaching analysis is a politically richer and more capacious Locke that has important implications for the present. The constitutionalism to which Locke's thought gives rise can meet the challenges of contemporary life without sacrificing principles of natural right upon the dubious altar of history. And its moderating spirit provides an important clue to one source, I think, of the remarkable scholarly and professional achievement that Michael and Catherine have accomplished both individually and jointly, an achievement that constitutes a virtual refounding here in the American heartland of political science in the original or genuine sense, both intellectually and institutionally. One might wonder, to be sure, or at least I wonder, whether Lockean natural right, even on this expanded reading, can adequately support the psychological, moral, and spiritual burdens life sometimes, and political life especially, demands. If not, a doctrine that begins with individual rights might require a supplement, be it Rousseauian, Kantian, or something else. But if this is so, there may be more to be said from the perspective of an effective and principled liberal constitutionalism for later thought, 
including even German, some German thought, <laughs> than Michael apparently allows. Or perhaps Locke has been German all along, um, and we just don't, you know, haven't recognized it uh, in, in the way, some ways that I think Michael has drawn attention to. At any time, at the same time, Michael departs from Strauss, as it seems to me, in at least one and perhaps two important respects beyond their evident disagreement about Locke. First, Strauss never doubted that mo the modern effort to diminish the political authority of um, revealed religion um, had ex exacted an untoward price. Michael's Lockean liberal order, on the other hand, though it can partner with a reasonable Christianity, can also seemingly dispense with revelation proper inasmuch as natural rights give rise on their own once they are thought through logically to natural obligations. Strauss's second wave by way of contrast, at least as I understand him, emerges over doubts on this very point. Indeed, subsequent efforts by Rousseau, Kant, Hegel, and others to reconcile man's natural freedom from all external authority with moral and civic obligation contained an important lesson, Strauss thought, at least as I read him, whatever the, these thinkers' other strengths or failings as to the limitations of Lockean individualism. Now, whether, again, whether an enriched um, understanding of Locke of the kind that, that Michael has so brilliantly set out might have persuaded Strauss, we'll, we'll, we'll obviously never know. <laughs> Second, and more tentatively, Michael and Catherine have argued on behalf of what they did, have really dubbed Midwest Straussianism, um, that philosophy need not refute the claims of revelation. It suffices if philosophy is to rationally justify itself, merely that it show, quote, that we are ignorant of the most important things, unquote. As they write, quoting Strauss, the question of utmost urgency, the question which does not permit suspense of judgment, is the question how one should live. Now this question is settled for Socrates by the fact that he is a philosopher. As a philosopher, he knows that we are ignorant of the most important things. The ignorance, the evident fact of this ignorance evidently proves the quest for knowledge of the most important things is the most important thing for us." Unquote. But Strauss arguably at least does not leave matters here. That conclusion, namely that we are ignorant of the most important things, um, rigorously follows only if it can be known that revelation is not a form of knowledge or that revelation as such is impossible. For as uh, Strauss, all, Strauss, as Kant, Strauss also once, uh, once wrote, um, the mere possibility of revelation would make philosophy something, quote, infinitely insignificant. Unquote. Or, as Strauss puts it in an unpublished note, quote, a philosophy which believes that it can refute the possibility of revelation and a philosophy which does not believe this. That is the real meaning of the quarrel between the ancients and the moderns. In the short, for Strauss, at least on one reading, unless one knows that revelation is impossible, the correct response to ignorance of the best life is not philosophy but prayer. Now that's a pretty heady statement and I don't really claim to understand it, but I'm just, I'm just reporting. <laughs> um, so Strauss's chief quarrel with the moderns on such an East Coast 
understanding lies not in their seeming amoralism, a defect that can be remedied, say, by fuller appreciation of Locke's artfulness and, and comprehensiveness, or by Hegel's dialectic, or by Kantian Grundlichkeit, but rather in their collective obfuscation, as Strauss saw it, of certain primary moral experiences through whose platonic examination, the possibility of revelation, can alone be adequately examined. Um, now, I have some sympathy with this argument, but I have to say I have more sympathy, personally, with Michael's insistence on beginning with what is first for us, namely the modern self in all its splendor. And as for the obfuscation of nature, as someone once said, you can throw out nature with a pitchfork, but she always hurries back. Um, so let me end then by returning to the primary thing, Michael's extraordinary achievement, one that calls to mind Strauss's own description of the political philosopher as one who sees clearly what enlightened citizens or statesmen do not see clearly or do not see at all. And this for no reason other than the fact that he or she looks further afield but in the same direction. Thank you. Thank you. Next, we'll turn to Nathan Tarkov. You, you unaccountably left out of your introduction of me my achievement in helping to supervise your dissertation. I prepared my remarks before Mike presented us with this question of what kind of Straussian is Michael anyway. Um, so I will extemporaneously say a little about that before turning to my prepared remarks, which shed light on that only quite uh, tangentially. Uh, and to some extent, will nonetheless cover some of the same ground that Jim and Susan did. I, I love Michael's ability to produce these fake or problematic syllogisms. <laughs> they are beautiful. So first there's the one in the, uh, in the first book, uh, uh, The Truth About Leo Strauss, um, which as, as you heard <clears throat> from Jim, uh, is uh, America is modern, modernity is bad, America is good. So what kind of Straussian is Michael? He says, the West Coast solves that problem by saying, modernity is bad, America is ancient, America is good. The East Coast uh, solves it by saying, modernity is bad, America is modern, America is bad. We in the Midwest <laughs> solve it by saying, America is pretty modern, modernity isn't so bad, America is okay. <laughs> strikes me as a moderate and sensible. <laughs> In which case, we would have to conclude that Michael is a Midwestern Straussian. Uh, In the new book, it gets more complicated. And here, I, I'm not sure if I'm, I'm assuming that the chapter on the Straussians in the new book is also primarily Michael. Um, so he divides it into two issues, morality and religion. 
on religion, and Susan already said this, the, the fake or problematic syllogism is philosophy to be rational must refute religion, uh, or the possibility of revelation. Philosophy does not uh, refute the possibility of religion. Philosophy is rational. Uh, and he divides, again, the Straussians into three <laughs> ways of solving this three-part fake syllogism. If I have this right, the fideists say uh, philosophy must refute revolution to be ra revelation <laughs> to be rational. I said this was extemporaneous. <laughs> uh, it does not do so, therefore it's not rational and is a matter of faith. And I, as far as I can make out, Michael is not a fideist. The um, rationalists, as he calls them, say philosophy must refute the possibility of revelation to be rational. It does do so. It is rational. And as far as I can make out, Michael is not a rationalist. But this third option that Susan talked about, the Zetetic one, philosophy is still trying to figure things out. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Therefore, it's pretty rational. <laughs> It has some of that same Midwestern. Moderately rational. Sensible. But then he turns to morality. Um, I'm not sure I have this one as straight. Uh, in, in which there are Aristotelians versus Platonists. Mm -hmm. Is that right? I hope I have this right. Um, in which the Aristotelians think morality is pretty good. And oh. the Platonists think it's vulgar. That's it. Uh, and uh, it does seem as if Michael is an Aristotelian in this respect. Though he doesn't say so in those terms. Me, me personally. Yes. Nope. Uh, personally. So <laughs> he is therefore a Midwestern Zetetic Aristotelian. <laughs> <laughs> Because Mike's question was not how does he differ from Strauss or interpret Strauss, but what kind. So we need it in terms of natural kinds of Straussians. Um, excuse me for all that, but I, I felt I had to respond properly. What I wanted to do is something different. However, the, uh, the, the title again of, of our panel was Leo Strauss, the study of political philosophy and the preservation of liberal constitutionalism. I took the and, this would be what, what uh, I forget uh, what what's, whoever wrote that part of the book calls a Benedettian interpretation. I took the and to be not conjunctive, but disjunctive. Um, it seems to me that Leo Strauss and the study of political philosophy give us very little in the way of advice about how to preserve liberal constitutionalism. Uh, to assess the bearing of Strauss's study of political philosophy on the preservation of liberal constitutionalism, one should first consider his understanding of the general relation of political philosophy to practical politics. For Strauss, political philosophy 
is the attempt to replace opinion about the nature of political things by knowledge of the nature of political things. But because political action is guided not by knowledge, but by questionable opinion, for Strauss, there is a permanent and fundamental tension between philosophy, even and especially political philosophy, and politics. Strauss distinguishes political philosophy from political thought by which he means any reflection concerning political fundamentals. But unlike political philosophy, political thought, he says, is, quote, indifferent to the distinction between opinion and knowledge. It may be no more than the expounding or defense of a firmly held conviction or an invigorating myth. Political thought is primarily interested in establishing or defending a specific political order rather than discovering the truth. Strauss also distinguishes political philosophy from what he calls their uh, political theory or comprehensive reflections on the political situation which lead up to the suggestion of a broad policy. It's clear to me that Strauss understood himself to be studying and practicing political philosophy rather than political thought or political theory as he defines them that he was more interested in clarifying the standards by, standards by which societies and politics are, and policies are judged than in suggesting a policy such as that suited to preserve liberal constitutionalism here and now. According to one account Strauss offers, the political philosopher looks at politics from the perspective of the enlightened, enlightened citizen or statesman and serves as an umpire trying to settle political controversies of paramount and permanent importance. The political philosopher as umpire sees the partial truths in the partisan perspectives as Aristotle does, for example, with the oligarchs and the Democrats, or as one might today in America with liberals and conservatives rather than side with one party. On a higher level, one that Strauss himself does not seem to try to occupy. Strauss says the political philosopher is the teacher of legislators or founders. Strauss also offers an account of the political philosopher, and this is the one I mean to emphasize, <clears throat> as the defender of prudence from theoretical errors. Strauss explains in the epilogue to Essays on the Scientific Study of Politics, quote, the sphere governed by prudence is then, in principle, self-sufficient or closed. Yet prudence is always endangered by false theoretical opinions. Prudence is therefore always in need of defense against such opinions, and that defense is necessarily theoretical. The theory defending prudence is misunderstood if it's taken to be the basis of prudence. Strauss makes no claim on behalf of the superior prudence of philosophers, and therefore was not an advocate of the rule of philosophers. As he notes in the Hobbes section of Natural Right in History, quote, according to the classics, political theory proper is essentially in need of being supplemented by the practical wisdom of the statesman on the spot. Strauss gives what may be his fullest explanation of this view of the relation of theory and practice or of political philosophy and prudence in a lecture titled, What Can We Learn from Political Theory? 
delivered at the General Seminar at the New School in July 1942 and published, thanks to Catherine, uh, in the Review of Politics in 2007. Strauss concedes there that political philosophy is at best knowledge of the problems, not the solutions, and so cannot be a guide to action. And that not political philosophy, but practical wisdom is needed to guide political action. Instead, he argues that political philosophy is needed to defend reasonable political action discovered by prudent statesmen, without the, discovered by them without the aid of political philosophy, against erroneous political doctrines in the light of the natural limits set to all human hopes and wishes. Political philosophy, Strauss argued, is needed to protect prudent policy, both against the Philistine who thinks our own present society is perfect, and against the modern utopian who believes he is achieving a future perfect society. Political philosophy teaches that so-called perfect order on earth is bound to be a delusion. It, quote, knows that evil cannot be eradicated and therefore that one's expectations from politics must be moderate. In his lecture on liberal education and responsibility, Strauss concludes that, quote, wisdom cannot be separated from moderation and hence, Wisdom requires unhesitating loyalty to a decent constitution and even to the cause of constitutionalism. According to Strauss, quote, it is characteristic of the classic natural right teaching to culminate in a twofold answer to the question of the best regime. The simply best regime would be absolute rule of the wise, which he says is practically impossible. The practically best regime is the rule under law of the gentleman or the mixed regime, mixed of kingship, aristocracy, and democracy. But even that practically best regime was not understood to be possible everywhere and always, in contrast to doctrinaire modern attempts to answer the question of the just order regardless of place and time so that there is, quote, no longer any need for statesmanship as distinguished from political theory. But does Strauss's study of political philosophy teach that liberal constitutionalism in its modern sense and form is such a decent constitution as requires unhesitating loyalty and dedication to its preservation where it already exists? Strauss writes in his restatement that it would not be difficult to show that liberal or constitutional democracy comes closer to what the classics demanded, the rule of gentlemen or the mixed regime, than any alternative viable in our age. He says it would not be difficult to show that, but he does not show that. Uh, and that conclusion would still seem to be a matter of prudential judgment rather than something one learns from his study uh, of classical political philosophy. And it still leaves open the practical, prudential questions of when and where liberal or constitutional democracy is possible, and of how to preserve liberal or constitutional democracy where and when it exists but is endangered. Strauss may have now and then expressed his own views on prudential questions, for example, 
reportedly privately expressing a preference for Stevenson over Eisenhower or publicly endorsing Nixon over McGovern. But those would be merely his prudential judgments rather than conclusions that he learned from his study of political philosophy. And as far as I know, he did not claim to be an exemplar of statesmanlike prudence. Strauss warns in the introduction to The City and Man that, quote, we cannot reasonably expect that a fresh understanding of classical political philosophy will supply us with recipes for today's use. Both in his lectures on liberal education and in his daily activity of teaching and writing, as Catherine and Michael properly emphasize in the conclusion of their chapter on Strauss's practical politics in the more recent book, Strauss practiced liberal education as an antidote to the dangers to which liberal democracy exposes itself. Unlike the classical political philosophers, as he describes them, he did not attempt to teach founders, nor did he himself devote his teaching and writing to the study of the prudence of the American founders and statesmen. But he did encourage and inspire others to do so, notably Harry Jaffa, Herbert Storing, Martin Diamond, and Michael Zuckert. Thank you. find myself in the uncomfortable position of beginning with two complaints. Um, the first, which is obvious, um, is about the last name I acquired with my husband. <laughs> well, just a minute here. <laughs> it means you always go last. <laughs> and the price of going last is you find that people who went earlier have said some of the things that you were planning to say. So either I will have jumps or I will be repeating. Um, the second complaint has to do um, with Mike's question, or it's related to that, is his question reminded me of one of my long-term regrets. Goes back to a time before I was a member of the faculty at Notre Dame. It was when I was serving as a member of an external review committee at Smith College. Um, and uh, Charles Wichuk Bites turned to me and he said, why do you object to being called a Straussian? And I didn't have the presence of mind to give the answer that I would have given had I thought about it instead of being just silent. And that answer would have been, I don't know what sin you are accusing me of. <laughs> are you accusing me of being a political conservative? Are you accusing me of ignoring the historical context in which political thought occurs? Are you saying, in effect, that I am a follower who doesn't know how to think for herself? Or if we jump forward as um, in The Truth About Leo Strauss to the Iraq war business, are you saying that I am an elitist and that I endorse lying and politics? Um, I think contrary to Bites's contention that the term Straussian is merely descriptive. Um, in my experience, it is usually dismissive, if not derisive. Um, and I have unfortunately heard that that's 
continued in my own department and subfield. To the topic. <laughs> if conservative, ignorant of history, inability to think for oneself, elitism, <laughs> or endorsement of noble lying is what it means to be a Straussian, this guy isn't one. <laughs> I'm not alone, I think. I may am showing my age in this, but I'm not alone among students of Strauss who haven't liked the term or the label for that reason. But most of us have reconciled ourselves to wearing the, I, so I studied um, the scarlet letter, the big red S, <laughs> um, rather than uh, disown as Stanley Rosen temporarily did, the man who had had so much influence on her own intellectual development. However, as you have heard, um, in the book Michael and I <laughs> co-authored um, on the truth about Leo Strauss, and I think he would want me, I'm sorry, John, seems to be anti the University of Chicago Press. <laughs> um, that wasn't our title. That was one that the press, in effect, foisted on us. Marketing division. Yes, <laughs> marketing division, not editorial. Um, in any case, in that book, I think Michael not only formulated a much more sophisticated and nuanced definitions of the different types of students and studies Strauss inspired. He also presented an explanation of why these different types had emerged, particularly within the context of Studies of America. As you have heard, although uh, he explicitly stated that he thought liberal constitutional democracy was the best possible regime under contemporary circumstances, Strauss himself didn't write much about it, about liberal democracy or about American constitutionalism. And when his American students did, they applied his ideas in quite different ways. As you've heard, the reason for these differences, Michael argued, could be found in what at least appeared to be a tension, if not outright contradiction, in Strauss's thought. And you have heard the three propositions. Um, America is modern, modernity is bad, America is good. One would think that Strauss didn't know how to reason. So-called West, so-called East Coast students of Strauss, like Alan Bloom and Harvey Mansfield, embraced the first two propositions, but qualified the third. Because the American regime was explicitly founded on principles drawn from modern political philosophy, they, especially Bloom, argued, the American regime has gradually degenerated from its relatively modern, moderate foundations in the principles of natural rights philosophy to a culture shaped and distorted by the second two waves of modern political thought, as Strauss understood it, that is Hegelian historicism that develops into Nietzschean nihilism. Again, on several panels, West Coast students of Strauss, such as Harry Jaffa then, responded to these East Coasters, no, oh, America is good. And because America is good, Jaffa came to argue, um, America is not truly or simply modern. If Aristotle had lived in modern times, Joseph contends, he would have proposed a regime very much like that described by John Locke in his second treatise. My opinion. These categories have always, always were and have become even muddier of late because scholars associated with the Claremont Review, such as Charles Kessler, who himself was a student of Harvey Mansfield, Michael Anton, whom I had told, 
was Philip Nunez's roommate at Claremont. <laughs> um, and Angelo Cotavilla, an IR scholar who has no connection to Strauss, so far as I know, all of them have emphasized in the Claremont uh, Review the corruption of the American regime at present as a justification for Trump. But unlike the patently ridiculous accusation that somehow 30 years after his death, Leo Strauss was responsible for the war in Iraq, the contention that there is a connection between Strauss and Trump has not caught on. If nothing else, the public prominence of Mr. Never Trump, William Crystal, and his close connection to Harvey Mansfield stands in the way. <coughs> As we were reminded this morning, Michael's signature addition to the classification was to add a third and still little recognized group of Strauss students, represented not only by Michael, Ralph Nerner, and William Galston, but also, I think, by Susan Schell, even though she lives on the East Coast. <laughs> she is liberal politically, as I last heard. She studies Kant, who is a modern, and I think she thinks for herself, and also to a certain extent by Nathan Tarkov. These students of Strauss are moderately liberal politically, and they do not think that modernity is simply bad, as Nathan Tarkov just said. But since two of them are present, I will leave them to speak for themselves. The central point of my comments and Michael's much more complex analysis is merely to acknowledge, sorry, is merely to emphasize that to acknowledge oneself as a student of Leo Strauss does not mean that one has a single or simple view of the history of political philosophy and its relevance to American liberal democracies. There are serious differences concerning these matters among students of Strauss, as well as between these students and other scholars. Thank you. So, Michael, we have 45 minutes. Uh, I'm not going to take that. Uh, well, I do want to take a few, though. Just before we open it to the audience. Well, know, that's the way we've been proceeding, but okay, uh, right, it's up right. to you, Mike. You're the well, you're respecter of tradition. And, uh, you know, so. This is a tradition of one day. Okay, or it's not even a whole day. I, mean, it's just, uh, I, um, I thought these papers were all uh, terrific, actually. I really like them all, and especially the last one that we heard. This will get me. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, apart from that. Um, I would like to p follow up a little bit on the point Catherine made in chiding John Terneski, poor John Terneski, <laughs> held responsible for many things he didn't really do. But the, 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 there's something about the title of our book, The Truth About Leo Strauss, <laughs> that I find utterly pretentious and crazy. I mean, <laughs> we never pretended that we had the truth about Leo Strauss, you know. We, we thought we had some thoughts about Leo Strauss and some arguments, interpretations of what he was about. But we know he's a complicated guy and he's also an elusive and subtle writer thinker and that we didn't pretend that we had the truth here. And I wanted, I wanted to emphasize that a bit because it forms part of what I would answer to especially Susan's comments. Um, so Susan raises some questions about whether the lock I've uncovered 
whether it would be the real Locke or some other, some, some secret version of Locke, um, whether that would adequately deal with the kind of question that's raised in the panel's title. Um, and I think those questions are terrific, and they're the same questions I grapple with myself. That is, I don't mean to have put forward anything as definitive about Strauss as an interpretation or as a um, prescription as sometimes as that title the truth about leo strauss might suggest i think the truth the, the title of our other book that captures better our thinking about strauss which is leo strauss and the problem of political philosophy mm -hmm. and one of the things we emphasize much in the book and indeed i think share this with nathan in his writings um, to em emphasize the problem of political philosophy, what that comes to, and why that's Strauss's real issue rather than some of these more dogmatic things that people attribute to him. So in some ways, Susan raises the question in her comments, well, is Locke enough or do we need supplementation by what we call second wave modern thinkers, uh, Rousseau, et cetera? And actually in my own work, I mean, I don't know how much inherent interest this holds to anybody, but in my own work, I've come to the point of wanting, I have as an, what I'd like to do if I live long enough to do it, uh, is to write a book on uh, Locke, Rousseau, and Hume, um, where I see the, you know, Locke set a certain kind of uh, position out, and Hume and Rousseau, Rousseau for the continent, Hume for the Anglo-American world, deflected thinking from, or at least uh, dislodged, let's say, the authority of Locke from where it was before they took that up. And so what I hope to do, I hope we'll settle or at least speak to the questions that Susan left us with, is um, uh, is to examine, is the Rousseauian, how, how much reliance should we, can we put on the Rousseauian critique of Locke? Likewise, how much reliance can we put on the Humean critique of Locke and other early modern, contractarian, et cetera, thinkers. So I just w wanted to close off with trying to make a case for more tentativeness uh, and more open-mindedness, in my own mind, I hope, uh, for the claims I've raised about Locke versus Strauss, which is, I guess, as far as my work goes, that's the most of it. Um, so that's all that we have to say. We got 45 minutes left, but uh, I'm done. <laughs> Super. Um, so, uh, we are being uh, recorded. Uh, I guess uh, Philip is uh, doing that to document any deviation for subsequent uh, punitive action. Um, and, and I'm uh, instructed to instruct you uh, that if you're recognized to uh, please identify yourself and uh, give us your social security number and <laughs> geolocating coordinates. So, uh, the floor is open. Please. Thank you. Lee Ward, uh, Baylor University. I have a question, I think, for, uh, for Nathan in particular, but the whole panel. Um, we talk about Strauss as a student of political philosophy or encouraging the study of political philosophy, and then Strauss as a political philosopher. And I'm wondering if there might be more of a distinction or if you could clarify what the distinction between the two would be. And did Strauss ever identify himself as a political philosopher? And that's sort of the last part of the question. Did Strauss ever make the distinction between philosophy 
and political philosophy. So what were people like Martin Heidegger doing in his view? Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> uh, to the last part's easier. Uh, yes, he certainly distinguishes philosophy from political philosophy. Heinrich Meyer has almost persuaded me that in a sense Strauss invents the category or terminology political philosophy. It's not used by um, most of the people to whom he refers to as political philosophers. And he gives a very peculiar definition of it as its deeper meaning that it's the political defense of philosophy uh, rather than the, the meaning I quoted I mean, uh, in, in my remarks that it's the philosophy that treats uh, the nature of political things. Certainly he makes that distinction uh, and says partial corrective to these first and second wave folks here. And Strauss himself devoted enormous attention to the third wave. Uh, I mean, he, you know, new books of Heidegger came out, he would get them immediately, study them, discuss them with Benedetti, etc. And, and his, uh, his last published writing was on, on Nietzsche, whom he taught also in one of his last courses. I clearly thought the third wave both made uh, telling criticisms of the first two and that it could help one to think, most importantly. Did he ever call himself a philosopher or a political philosopher? Um, not explicitly, as far as I know. Given his definition of it, it would have been so uh, <coughs> presumptuous or uh, to do so, but it seems to me, although not to everybody I know in respect, obvious that that's what he thought he was doing. Um, uh, in, and he, of course, makes clear, most famously perhaps in his Ferrari's Plato, that one can practice political philosophy in the form of a commentary on other political philosophers, that that was a well-established well, uh, so, so yes, I, I, I do think uh, that he was a philosopher insofar as that was supposed to mean, uh, you know, judging his, the purity of his pursuit of truth, I'm not there. I'll add one other thing since you happened to single me out. In a way, the more important question perhaps than what kind of Straussian is Michael, is what kind of Straussian was Leo Strauss? <laughs> and some of you may know I wrote an article long ago called On a Certain Critique of Straussianism, whose secret title is Leo Strauss's Critique of Straussianism. Uh, there's this, Meyer makes something of a letter that Strauss wrote to, to Klein when he arrives in Chicago. I have to come up with a political theory for my students. Uh, or in the article that I wrote that I mentioned earlier in his review of Collingwood, he writes about how somebody might create a new school of platonic political philosophy and that would have certain disadvantages. And then gives again, uh, already before he's created Straussianism, his critique of the dangers involved in doing so. So um, 
he was not a Straussian, <laughs> and was in a way the first critic of Straussianism. Uh, Walter Nagorski, Notre Dame. Uh, I'm easily reachable by the people observing us and controlling us. Uh, and in any case, I did want to uh, address a question to the panel as a whole, maybe specifically initially to Nathan and Michael. I, I've, I've long been attracted by the proposition that uh, political philosophies, uh, one of its Grave, grave responsibilities is not, if not greatest, is to protect the sphere of prudence and statesmanship. But I'm wondering, as you presented a kind of summation, Nathan, of that 1942 piece, and I'm wondering, can, can political philosophy uh, avoid affirming some truths in the course of protecting the sphere of prudence? Are those uh, is, is, is protecting the sphere of prudence a backing away from truth, at least at the principle level, or does it not have to lay hold of some principles in, in order to uh, do that? Yeah, the, this distinction he makes between political philosophy being the basis of prudence and being its defender is a little shaky. <laughs> that is to say, it if you're going to call these other theoretical positions errors, doesn't that imply some truth? Or, or even he says it's based on an awareness of the limits to politics and the ineradicability of evil. So those are theoretical truths, it seems to me, but they don't tell you what to do, uh, it seems to me. They may say that's a mistake, but they don't say what the right policy might be. Of course, if you rule out all the other policies, right. you will end up with the right one. I don't know. Michael, can you help? <laughs> well, I actually had a question, Nathan, that I wanted to pose to you. And maybe it would help. I don't That's know. Help. You I mean, this is in, in the first part of our second book. Starting to sound a little bit like Aquinas here, so we have a longish discussion of Strauss's essay, What is Political Philosophy, especially the first part. And we begin that chapter with an observation that I actually I think I stole from Jim Caesar, uh, which is that there are only two places where Strauss asks the what is question what is political philosophy and what is liberal education? And even though he presents that as the philosophic question, the Socratic question, he seldom addresses it explicitly in his own name. Um, and so we deal with that question, with that essay, what is political philosophy, thinking there's something particularly important about that essay. Um, it's always seemed to me that if you want to begin reading Strauss, that's the place to begin reading Strauss, not necessarily the end. But that may not be good judgment. But Nathan has written on this, on this as well. And I think the way we ended up discussing the, this question is noticing that there were certain ambiguities or even differences in the way Strauss described what political philosophy is in that essay. And so 
uh, our answer, if I remember our book correctly, um, our answer is that, well, there was a twofold character of political philosophy as he described it. Um, one fold of that came from within political life. That is, he traced the origin of political philosophy to political life itself, because political life itself asks the kind of questions or poses the kind of problems that political that ultimately lead to political philosophy. Um, questions like, you know, what is justice, et cetera. These are questions that emerge in political life, but which lead normally beyond political life towards semantic philosophy. And then there's another path to political philosophy, which path is the path of um, uh, philosophy. Philosophy, he said, is the effort to transform opinion about the whole into knowledge about the whole. And then he goes on to say, well, uh, political life is part of the whole. And so political philosophy is that part of philosophy, which is an attempt to transform opinion about politics into knowledge about politics, something like that. And along with this um, bifurcation, and so we saw, I should say, we saw the play between these two presentations by Strauss of how we get to political philosophy and what the differences between those two might actually come to. Um, we saw this third that Nathan emphasized in his comments here, which is, and Nathan, uh, let's say, privileges this view. Um, I, I like to use that term, privileging it. It's giving me a certain standing in the world. Um, which is to say the political defense of philosophy is what political philosophy is. That is, when, when, when philosophy steps into the public world, then it steps into it in the guise of political philosophy, that, uh, sorry, the political philosophy, which is a defensive presentation of philosophy to the public world in which philosophy tries to persuade the public world that it, philosophy, is not dangerous, but is in fact helpful or good for public life. Um, and Nathan particularly privileged that understanding. And I, I guess the question I actually had, have is, is that really a right thing to do, to privilege that in that way? I personally would privilege the other approaches um, without denying that obviously political philosophy understood in the way you're privileging is something important in Strauss's work. Hmm. Uh, well, as a defender of privilege, <laughs> I, I must respond. Uh, well, it's not me who privileges it. It's Leo Strauss. He says in the essay on classical philosophy, he first gives the other definition. Then he says, but the deeper meaning is the political defense of philosophy. He says it's the deeper meaning. And it's clearly his distinctive. Nobody else has ever defined it this way. It's his, this is his contribution to the question of the meaning uh, of political philosophy. So I think in, in, in those ways, he privileges it. In defense of the University of Chicago ah. Press, <laughs> it seems to me that the title of the first book, The Truth About Leo Strauss, is actually in a way accurate because not because it is the truth, but because it, it makes clear the sort of fact that this is a defense of the political philosophy, that it is, unlike the second book, is primarily a response to various criticisms and slanders, and in contrast to them is 
the truth. So it is a defense of political philosophy. Could I just add? Yeah. As I understand, deeper isn't necessarily better, at least on some, in some cases, Strauss would not privilege depth. So maybe you should take that. It's a third wave word. <laughs> That's right. Well, I, I do have to say about the truth, about the title of the truth, about I, I think Nathan's conjecture or Nathan's presentation is perfectly correct. Um, but um, it's part of the press's marketing department's <laughs> effort to make this book kind of an uh, airport. Uh, <laughs> it would be available in airports all over the country, and people would want to buy it and read it while they're closing the American mind. <laughs> yeah, that sort of, sort of thing. I think they had in mind. There's truth to what you just said, <laughs> but part of it is that there are all, as you were saying before, about truth being different in different contexts. Yeah, there are all these other books that about Strauss. Most of them we're doing the litany that Catherine just gave us about you know, the sin, the badness. Yeah. So in some ways, you could say this was the truth about Straussianism. Mm -hmm. But even just saying it that way, it's, it's, it carries baggage. So the truth about Leo Strauss was a way of saying, there are all these other books, but if you want the truth about Leo Strauss, this is the one that you have. That still has the danger of sort of selling it to a Selling more than we, you know, claiming to sell more than we actually had on sale. I remember when I had to prepare to call you folks up and say, hey, we have a new idea for a title. I knew you wouldn't like it. <laughs> it has the advantage as an airport book. Yeah. The fact that they carry baggage. All joking aside, for the record, Leo Strauss and his legacy owes an enormous debt to the University of Chicago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Please. Uh, Jeffrey Church, University of Houston. I'm Michael's son-in-law, if you weren't here last night. Um, Michael, I wanted to ask you about the, the three waves thesis in Strauss and your view of it. So you're, you're, you're critical of Strauss's view of locks, which means you're presumably critical of his Three Waves thesis that's a sort of teleological, inexorable story of the movement from, from one wave to the other. So how do you conceive of the relationship of, uh, between the, the three waves? Do you conceive of it as a kind of contingent relationship in the way that Strauss himself thinks of the relationship between the ancients and the moderns, that it was a, a kind of choice? Or do you, do you think of it in a, in a different sort of way? This is sort of, I think, following up on some of Susan's comments or the thrust of her thought. You know, how, how the later moderns stand to the early moderns, I mean, the way you think of it. Well, I think um, a lot of the issue here has to do with Rousseau and how Rousseau understood Locke and other of his own predecessors. Um, in my opinion, Rousseau didn't really get what Locke was doing or what he, what the, the way in which Locke's thought rested on the, as, uh, as, uh, uh, who put it this morning? Somebody put it this morning. One of our fellows. I was, anyway, Peter. It was Peter. No, it was Peter. Uh, and, yeah, it was Peter. <laughs> Peter put it. Okay. Which was that my analysis, or in his, and Lee, Lee and Peter, I think. My analysis rests on what I think of as a phenomenological analysis of Lockean theory of self consciousness. That's what my theory of Locke 
builds on. I don't think Rousseau sees it that way. And if, I mean, he might, he's, you know, he's probably a greater philosopher than I am, certainly a greater philosopher than I am. But nonetheless, uh, <laughs> if he's, I mean, if he's right, then he's right and I'm wrong and that's the end of it. Um, but on the other hand, I'm wanting to explore whether my thesis that Rousseau moves in a certain direction because he doesn't really understand correctly what the direction Locke had moved in was. Um, and so since I haven't written this book and even made great headway into it, um, I'll, I'll leave it at that. That's, I mean, that's what I want. Could you give us an inkling of what you just meant? Even though you haven't read the book, what is it that all this? Well, all the, the how should we put it? What's a more standard view of Rousseau? Somebody give it to me. <laughs> David, give me a more standard view of Rousseau. What it is, whatever it is he says standardly, that's what I'm rejecting. No, but... <laughs> oh, sorry, okay. I'll be, I'll be, I'll be a guinea pig. That yeah. if per Locke, we are not by nature political animals, that is to say, because being restrained by government inevitably rubs us the wrong way, makes us live a divided life between the artificial public self and the real inner self, then it is just as true that society inevitably um, interferes with our happiness because having to kiss up to your boss uh, or any kinds of superiors um, is in conflict with what you would really like to do, which is be your own self, which might involve, let's say, affectionate relations of your own choosing with uh, a fellow being. One doesn't have to go as far as the portrayal of natural man in the second discourse. Mm -hmm. uh, but that, yes, Locke didn't go far enough in thinking through what it would take to liberate us or as uh, Alan Bloom emphasized, to make us harmonious selves. How's that? That's good. I think that's a good statement. And um, so, what I what I what I think I would be in what I what I think I would be inclined to argue if I had an inclination of what, <laughs> um, would be would be to say something like this: <clears throat> that the Lockean self a is constituted in a different way than Rousseau understood, and that it is not, it, that some elements through so many critique of Locke or the observations about Lockean politics are certainly correct. That is, civilization and its discontents, there is something to that formula that holds, I think, in all liberal thinking. Um, but it doesn't mean that it holds in the way and to the degree that Rousseau argues that it does. And that's what I would be inclined to challenge, that that degree that leads Rousseau to reject all liberal construals as not ultimately possible, not possible for them to build either decent, decent selves, happy selves, or moderately happy selves, or however we want to describe them, on the basis of the Lockean self. That's the area where I want to take issue with Rousseau. Um, wouldn't mean throwing, I wouldn't want to throw the baby Rousseau out with the bathwater of whatever it is he's got. He already, of course, thrown out the, both the babies and the bathwater when he took his children to be. Um, <laughs> I, I, I will throw in, I, I, I had a conversation with Bloom 
school when I was about 30, and I was lamenting the effect of Rousseau on modern political life. And he responded, where would we be without Rousseau? You know, yeah. we would be all leading meaningless bourgeois lives, yeah. uh, unlike Rousseau himself, who was, of course, beyond his meaningless <laughs> consumption yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I think it's hard to tell in Rousseau, in Bloom, whether he admires uh, Rousseau more or Plato more. Uh, Sue Collins, um, also Notre Dame faculty, and um, I want to go back to a, a question, uh, which is a, a difficult question that Susan raised in her remarks on the Zuckert position on the relation of philosophy and faith, reason and revelation. Um, and I'd like to say at the outset, I put myself in the Northern Canadian Strauss <laughs> which is that it's just usually too bloody harsh and cold to really think about these kinds of matters. So I don't have a firm position on this, but the, the Zuckert position is the position of uh, the Sedetic position, which is that, that the one cannot refute the other. Um, but of course, I, I want to put this in the way, recall, and Susan, you can... Um, elaborate, if you wish, a, a way that Susan put the relationship, I suppose, partly from the East Coast <laughs> tribe, um, which is, at the very least, the uh, philosophic position has to be able to say to the position of faith that you cannot claim to know what you merely believe. And that, I wonder where the Zuckerts stand on that question and whether, that, whether you would agree with that formulation. Susan, again, you can elaborate it more beautifully the way you did in your, your remarks. Um, and if you, if, you, if you do agree, whether that uh, qualifies as a refutation. So as I understand it, I mean, this is a pretty complicated question and we try to deal with it in the second Strauss book. Uh, and got into almost everybody we talked about in that has protested against what we said. So you can see it's not been a wild success. Um, but as I understand it, actually, this whole issue of reason, revelation, Athens, Jerusalem, et cetera, et cetera, really is two different questions. Uh, and one question is, is the pursuit of philosophy rational and therefore self-consistent with its own commitment to rationality if it's the case that philosophy cannot refute the possibility of revelation? That's one question. Another question is, can philosophy refute revelation or not? Those seem to me to sound like the same question, but they're actually rather different questions. So the one question, which is the one Strauss was really wrapped around, was the first. Is, it, is the pursuit of philosophy rational in the face of the fact, as Strauss affirmed, I think affirmed and meant it, um, that philosophy cannot refute the possibility of revelation? And I think he saw the difference between the ancients and moderns as lying exactly here, that the ancients were, saw that the question of whether philosophy can refute revelation or not is not the question that requires answering in order to decide whether philosophy is a rational pursuit. It was the moderns who made that insistence instead. 
And for Strauss, the, for the ancients, it was enough that they could show, and I think Susan restated the argument, um, that it's enough that we know that we do not know, but know that the most important thing is to know in the face of our not knowing. And knowing that is enough to rationally justify philosophy because philosophy becomes rational under those conditions when we know that we don't know, but we know that knowing uh, what there is to know is the, is the most important thing. And so therefore, philosophy can proceed quite rationally without having refuted revelation. And I believe, as I don't know whether others at the table would agree with this, I'd be interested to hear what they say, um, that Strauss is actually serious when he says, as he says many times, revelation cannot, in fact, uh, sorry, uh, philosophy or rationalism cannot refute revelation. Um, so that's at least, uh, Catherine, do you agree? That's our, form, our, our uh, formal, agreed on, negotiated. And you think he's kidding. No, I don't think so. But um, Maybe I could just, so I just, I mean, again, this is a very puzzling term. That it's unpublished, there's notes, and it's a kind of elliptical set of, notes that, you know, who knows if this is his last word. You know, he's experimenting with different positions. But at one point, and it does, there doesn't seem to be a sequitur, he says, and again, you can read this in different ways, um, a philosophy which believes that it can refute the possibility of revelation, and a philosophy which does not believe that. This is the real meaning of the quarrel between the ancients and the that's moderns. What, that's what I said. And that suggests that the ancients thought they could, ref they believed they could refute. And then the question is, well, if you, yeah, so were they right? Were they wrong? Did Strauss think they were right? Did he think it was important to find out? And is that why he spent all his time basically studying the ancients? Um, it, it, uh, it's at least tantalizing, because I'm very attracted to the position that, that, um, that, you, that you lay out. But there is at least this other, you know, this other textual, and again, it's very, you know, it's, it's, it's not necessarily authoritative or reliable, but the suggestion that, that somehow the difference between the ancients and moderns is a difference between the those who are able and those who are not able, or believe that they're able, um, he doesn't say that they are able to refute revelation. No, and I read that completely differently. Yes, I understand that. Yeah, yeah okay, so yeah. we're clear. You have to reverse the order of the words yeah. he uses. He says, ancient, puts ancient first in, in that passage he quoted. I'll have to look back at the text to confirm that. No, I don't, I, I, possibly, but that's not my understanding of it. But one of the things that Strauss wrote um, was uh, at least that his conviction that Hegel had not been able to show that reason could explain everything in the world. And as long as there was no form of science, knowledge, philosophy that could give a completely rational account of the whole, that meant you couldn't disallow the possibility of the creating God. That's actually a pretty narrow defense of revelation, if that's what you were looking for. But it is an explanation of why philosophy hasn't been able to refute revelation. Mm -hmm. So Michael, if I could take the uh, chair's prerogative and shift gears just uh, a little bit. I, I think it's fair to say that you're more than a friend of Lockean liberalism. But the question is whether your uh, enthusiasm for it 
uh, has survived the uh, buffets of uh, contemporary American politics. How do you keep the faith? Well, I mean, so the question is, can Lockean, can you remain friendly to Lockean liberalism given the buffets? And so can you specify what buffets you have in mind? <laughs> huh? <laughs> yeah, Warren, well, well, a good Lockean, of course, would uh, hitch his wagon to Warren Buffett as an investor. <laughs> Could easily survive the Buffets in that case. Yeah. Michael, what I'm asking is, if Lockean liberalism somehow produces Trump, is that correct? Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, Warren is good defendant. Trump is he's, he's only... He's looking for a three-part syllogism again. No, exactly. But, it, but Trump only as uh, a, a series of pathologies of our system that seem in a way to, from the perspective of people, uh, less friendly to Lockean liberalism to be Trump. a wholesale indictment. Trump, Trump infrastructure. <laughs> um, I see the connection between Lockean liberalism and Trump to be not that direct. Uh, I mean, as we, as we had discussion earlier today, there are many, you know, sort of more mid-level factors that are involved in the rise of a Trump. They're not all at this cosmic level that we're, we've been talking about, and maybe little or few of them have been. Um, so I would say that. I, I, I'm just not sure I, you know, we need a concrete analysis, not, not just throwing around words about profiting, but um, an analysis that says, well, what is actually the link between, say, Locke or Lockean liberalism or whatever, however you want to put it, and the maladies of our day and actually a clear identification of what those are. And if we get those out on the table, then I'll at least make a guess at how to answer it. Um, but, you know, I think in the form of your question, I don't know how to answer it. it to uh, refer to our colleague Patrick Deneen's book, which, yeah. uh, you know, got uh, quite a bit of attention, yeah. I think, you know, based on the sense that a lot of things that have gone wrong <coughs> can be traced back to uh, certain developments uh, in liberal in American liberalism. You don't you don't see that. I mean, that doesn't. Uh... Well, I see Patrick claiming that. Uh, <laughs> I also, I mean, I've I've said my piece on this, which is. I don't agree with Patrick's reading of the early moderns. I don't agree with his reading of what liberalism is, was, has been, started out to be, and so on. And I've, in my various writings, have tried to defend my position. And again, if it doesn't work for you, then I don't know what to do. <laughs> you know? So, and Patrick, it certainly doesn't work for, but you know, he goes on. We, he goes on his merry way. Yeah. <laughs> Gloomy way. Gloomy way. Yeah, yeah. Paul Carice, Arizona State University. I want to ask a question that I think the panel title is asking about liberal education and civic education. But first, I want to defend John Trinesky again. It's it's related to this tension, though, right? That if if the title of the book had been Zetetic Reflections on Leo Strauss <laughs> and the Problem of Political Philosophy and the Deeper Meaning of You Know, um, it, it, uh, what good would it have done? Because no one. You know, know of it or read it. So the, the tension, am I, am I right? I'm very glad that John Trinesky, uh, that Nathan cited the passage in the essay on liberal education about unhesitating loyalty 
to a decent liberal constitution and to constitutionalism. So uh, responses from the panel, is Strauss and his legacy as a teacher and scholar helping to recover for us a healthy awareness of the healthy tension between philosophic investigation and, and the philosopher's duty to support, at least as a rebuttable presumption, to support uh, commitment among students and a wider community to the form of a decent government that allows for universities, <laughs> that allows uh, for debate. So as to give students the freedom to choose, just as in the essays on the mutual influence of philosophy and theology, right? Uh, whether it's rhetoric from Strauss or he really means it, that, that, that students should be forced to know of this tension and make their own choice. That's, that's the philosopher's duty in a way. Um, is that, is that a, a, a description of the, the legacy, the positive legacy of Strauss to remind political science that it, it wants to be philosophic in a way and scientific, but it also has a duty to, to perpetuate or sustain awareness among its students of liberal constitutions? I, I, would, I would hazard an answer to that. Um, and it harkens back to actually the point Nathan made about our newer book, uh, which is to say there were, with regard to politics, there were two Strausses. There's the Platonic Strauss and there was the Aristotelian Strauss. And the, when Strauss wanted to address political science and political life, he was an Aristotelian. And when he wanted to address beyond that, he was a Platonist. And there, the difference between Plato and, well, one, it would be then worth really parsing out. What was the difference between Plato, Platonism, Aristotelianism, as he understood them? And secondly, to then, um, to, if there's a lesson in Strauss, I think that lesson is, yes, you political scientists, you people who address political life, you people who go on CNN as talking heads, uh, not you people who go on MSNBC. Um, uh, you people have a responsibility to approach politics in an Aristotelian spirit, meaning uh, you brush over the hard questions about morality that he raises when he talks about Aristotle, and you have a responsibility to be responsible. I think that would be the easiest way to put it. Uh, so that's the way I see it. And so it depends a little bit on which mode you're approaching political life. And the right answer is the right mode when you're approaching political life is the mode appropriate to political life, which is the Aristotelian mode. I, I believe that's what his answer roughly is. You know? Yeah, you, you asked my question, but I can add to it. Um, I'm Beth Larrave from Colgate University. And uh, it seems like I also, well, my question was also about the legacy of Strauss and what particular you see it, how you would want it to unfold, how you think it ought to, what would be the best legacy. And so the way I've understood it so far is that it seems like you're saying, um, theoretically, the best legacy of Strauss is the primacy of the problems for that to continue. Um, and then with respect to uh, politics itself and how the political philosopher engages in political life, the best legacy would be for to promote like constitutionalism and uh, adherence to the best available doctrines or dogmas. Um, and then my question is more about um, 
more prudential in the sense of uh, like I, I loved your um, articulation of the uh, <laughs> the accusations of Strokeyism with from within the university. So. How do you navigate the legacy of Straussian, or how would you like to see that unfold in the university itself, thinking of the university as an institution that has that conflict between philosophy and politics within it? Because I think that the answer might be something different than the, how the legacy would unfold in terms of the conflict between philosophy and politics in the public sphere. <clears throat> it might be different, it might be the same, or it might be. Kevin, yeah. what do you say to that? I'll take a stab at it. I don't feel as if I um, answered that question in practice very well, but um, what would I be trying to do? Uh, it seems to me that the primacy of the problems has, if it has a place, it has to be the university because that's what philosophy is, although not most members of philosophy departments that I know actually think that. Uh, <laughs> But it also seems to me that if one takes seriously uh, Strauss's analysis of modern political philosophy in the three waves, um, it highlights, for him it's in very sophisticated philosophical terms, but I think it highlights a problem with practically with contemporary education, not just in the university, but certainly carrying over. And that is, I know that I have consistently told students, um, you have to read critically. You have to raise questions. But there's something acidic or dissolving always about being a critic. I, and I think that Nietzsche shows where just being critic leads. So it's all negative. And I think the other side of Strauss's legacy in praising decent regimes or liberal constitutionalism, or maybe I should take away the liberal, the constitutional orders as being the best possible political orders, is that you have to say that there's something positive that you could hold on to. And I, at least as I understand Strauss, there were two positive things that you could hold on to. So one is that it is possible not for everyone, unfortunately, but it's possible to live a satisfying life as an individual human being. And philosophy, that's what philosophy is. Um, but everybody can't be a philosopher for a lot of reasons. It's also possible to have a decent political order that is not oppressive and that doesn't enslave people, etc. Please, we have time for one more question, and hopefully Michael will have the... Uh, I, I think this will be for Michael, but anybody who wishes who can take it. In view of the antinomy you set up between the Platonic and Aristotelian Strauss, how explain the fact that he wrote <coughs> excuse me, so much more on Xenophon, three books and an important article, than he did on Plato? Well, uh, yeah, I don't know. I... Xenophon is a, a Straussian art I've never been able to master, so <laughs> I have not much to say about him, um, nor, nor Maimonides. Uh, there are certain blind spots for me for Strauss, and uh, Maimonides and Xenophon are two of them. Um, but he's clearly, he saw Xenophon as a Platonist, so I, I don't think those are inconsistent. It is, 
I mean, I don't think it's inconsistent that Strauss should be more on the Platonic side than the Aristotelian side in his own thinking, um, and that writing on Xenophon so much is not inconsistent with that fact. Um, why he didn't write more about Plato, uh, I, I, you know, it's a hard question. I mean, writing Strauss to, for Strauss to write on Plato must have been an, a tremendous effort because he put in so much work, hard work, getting that all clear. Um, but I remember him saying in class sometimes that um, he saw Xenophon as like the guardian of the Platonic circle. And he therefore saw Xenophon as an important thinker, but not at the level of Plato. And I think he saw Xenophon as the, well, as to say, the better approach for non-experts to what Platonic philosophy is. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's more in the spirit of what he thinks should be the relation between political, uh, between philosophy and politics or political philosophy and political life. So again, I, I don't know, I'd throw that back to my friends here. Well, just to complicate it a little further, uh, although he published so little on Aristotle, the politics is the book he taught Thought. most often, so which he obviously, in some sense, thought most <coughs> useful to no. students. Uh, I, I, I would say uh, so, and the the side of him I attempted to emphasize earlier, the side that that limits philosophy to make room for prudence is purely. I mean, prudence isn't even a platonic term or concept. Yeah. This is a very Aristotelian side of him, too. So I think the situation is messier. <laughs> so we're well past the, uh, uh, the witching hour, uh, 6.15. Um, and uh, in characteristic fashion, uh, Michael was given the last word uh, to one of his colleagues <laughs> on the panel, uh, <laughs> rather than himself although the uh, uh, activities of the day uh, are not done, although whether he'll have any rebuttal to the, this evening's <laughs> remarks uh, uh, will be another uh, question. Um, just uh, by way of uh, logistics, the uh, evening is reconvening or uh, recommencing uh, at 7 o'clock out here with the uh, opening of the bar. Um, I think the, uh, the program is uh, beginning uh, formally at uh, 7.15. So uh, please join me in thanking Jim Seeds and his two friends.